0: temperatures are warming up and that means one thing, summer research internships are right around the corner. Okay, maybe you're thinking vacation, but I have fond memories of the summer that I spent on campus doing research while the rest of my friends were lounging by the pool or whatever else it is people do in the summer. Doing a summer research program or an internship can be a big boost for your graduate school applications, but perhaps more importantly, it's a time free from the restraints of coursework when you can really give a research project the attention it deserves and see if that's your thing. Since many students out there are beginning summer research internships over the next few weeks, we decided to pull out this episode from the summer of 2019 to share some tips for making the most out of that experience. Even if you aren't an undergrad doing summer research, I think this episode would also be useful for graduate students who might be training a summer research student. Besides that, many of the tips are helpful for anyone working in the lab at any level. Anyhow, hope you enjoy and share this episode with a summer research student in your life. This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by ProMega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. He's a PI now.
1: Is that right? So so (laughs) go ahead and set everything on fire. It doesn't matter.
0: If you like that science, you better put a ring on it. That's right.
1: Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we share the seven habits of highly effective summer students. Stay with us.
0: we're back. This is Hello PhD episode 116. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey Dan, happy Father's Day to you. Thank you. Happy one to you as well. Did you have a good one?
1: Uh, pretty good. Can't complain. Uh, it makes me think of how terrible a father, I'm, I'm not claiming that I'm a good father now, but I think I would have been a terrible father in graduate school. I think it would have been really, really difficult. There are people that do it and to them I say kudos.
0: Yeah, kudos to you to all of the parents out there getting those PhDs. Good for you. That's right. So my family was going to make me breakfast this morning. That was going to be the thing they wanted to do. But on the weekend, I am usually the breakfast chef. That's historically my job. And and you don't get to participate if it's Father's Day. Right? That was that was the plan. They were very adamant about that, but then no one felt super confident in their ability to make pancakes. Or bacon, so I ended up making breakfast.
1: That would have been great if they did it and served it to you and you're like, oh, this isn't as good as what I do. That would have been classic. Two stars. <laughs> Two stars.
0: Would not go again. But, Dan, something I am excited about is this beer that we have in front of us right now. Tell me something about it. All right, Dan, well, this is some listener beer. The best kind. This came to us from listener of the show, Pedro Who is from Puerto Rico. Oh, and uh, it's actually a place that you've been. That is a place that I've been. I've never been. And and this one, Dan, this is the Ocean Ruby Grapefruit Pale Ale from Isla Verde, Puerto Rico. And this comes from Ocean Lab Brewing Company. Okay, should we give it a taste? I'm interested, Dan. You know, we like an IPA, but this is a grapefruit pale ale. You don't even need to
1: take a sip, Josh. You just need to take a smell. Okay, let's see here. It smells like you just cut
0: into a grapefruit. It does? Wow, really citrusy. Almost, if I didn't know it was beer and I was smelling it, I would think fruit juice. So is it sweet? I guess I should try it. It is not
1: sweet. It does have the bitter grapefruit kick. Oh, wow. It's like it's like eating a grapefruit. It really is.
0: Yeah, you know, it really is. And, and Dan, you know, like a pale ale, there is that hoppy bitterness, but certainly on top of that, the unmistakable grapefruit bitterness.
1: Yeah, it, it starts hoppy and then I think it, it smooths into a, a much deeper bitterness that you would... Associate with grapefruit. I really like it. I, I like grapefruit though, so that makes me
0: weird. I'm lukewarm on grapefruit, which is interesting because I like a, a hoppy bitter beer. Then I did have uh one time a grapefruit that was broiled. It was cut in half, and it had a brown sugar cinnamon topping, and then it was broiled, so it got this crispy cinnamon sugar shell on top, and you ate it with a spoon?
1: That was awesome. That's interesting because if they burn the sugar, that's also going to be bitter. Mm-hmm. But they they oh, just, just melted right. it. Just, just, right. just perfect. Okay. Yeah, so
0: good. So good. I'm down.
1: I think heating fruit on the grill is
0: delicious. It is delicious. It is. Summertime tip. I would love some grilled fruit with this grapefruit pale ale.
1: Yeah, I really like this one. And uh, if it weren't from so far away and so difficult to get, I might I might try it again. But thank you to Pedro for sharing it with us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and Pedro brought us a few different Puerto Rican beers, so we can look forward to trying some more on the show in the future. Also, Dan, I happen to know that that Pedro just graduated this week from the University of Puerto Rico Arecibo and he is planning to apply to grad school this year. Oh well, that's incredible. Can you play the horn noise?
1: There it is. Okay. Well, congratulations, Pedro. And thanks again for sharing this delicious beer with us. All right, Dan, what do our friends at ProMega have to say to us this week? So much, Josh. You know that oftentimes there are techniques that you maybe don't understand or related to today's topic, things you're trying to explain to maybe an undergrad or somebody that's coming through the lab And you're busy, and they're busy, and wouldn't it be great if there were resources that could help maybe bring them up to speed a little bit before you had to sit down with them and walk them through that? Uh, Promega has that. They've got a student resource center, and it's got resources for all sorts of cellular and molecular biology techniques like cell culture, reporter assays, PCR, cloning, tons of stuff on there. So if you have a summer student this year, and that's what we're going to be talking about, why don't you send them to promega.com slash hello PhD. And you'll find a link there to get access to all that important information.
0: And I guess if you are a summer student, you could just do go straight to the source and don't wait
1: yourself. That's right. Yeah. We hear from listeners who are undergrads thinking about going to grad school all the time. So what a great resource to have at your fingertips.
0: Maybe you can show those graduate students a thing or two. All right, Dan, that's a great segue into our topic for this week. But before we jump into that, we still have a little bit of feedback that has come in on our last couple of episodes talking about the fixed-time PhD. I did manage to intercept all the hate mail, right? <laughs> it didn't get to me, so okay, thank great. you. Good job to our email screener. All right, Dan, so we had an email that came from uh, listener Nancy. And so, so Nancy said, I just finished listening to Hello PhD episode 114, grad school should have a time limit. Awesome work as always. I'm not familiar with any program in the United States that has a set time for finishing a PhD, but I have heard of PIs who work to have their students finish in an allocated amount of time. A friend of mine works in a lab with a PI who was trained under the British system and therefore ensures that her students graduate in no longer than four and a half years. Trying to change the system on a national scale will be a challenge, but it's reassuring to know that there are individual PIs out there who are in support.
1: Love it. Now, you'll remember, Josh, we did hear from a few programs in the United States that do have fixed-term PhDs, one at the University of Colorado and a program at UCLA. But what I love about what Nancy said is, again, it's a change that somebody can make today individually without having to revamp the entire graduate school process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this points out you know some good research that you could do if you're in a, a position as a new graduate student where you're choosing labs, maybe you're doing rotations or you're looking for a PI. That's another piece of data you could try to collect if it's a PI that has graduated students in the past. You know, maybe take a look at how long students on average take to get out of that lab. That might be another data point or even maybe ask the PI what their philosophy is on on students graduating.
1: Do you find that there is some consistency in time to graduation based on PI? Is that something that you've ever observed? I know you probably don't have data collected on it, but...
0: You know, I don't. Well, actually, it's something I probably do. Are there people you tell,
1: (laughs) (laughs) PIs you tell the student just don't go to that lab because it takes nine years?
0: You know, I recently was talking to a grad student who was choosing a lab and one of the labs he was considering, the PI was very straight up with him, that most of his students tend to graduate in four or four and a half years and he's very focused and that's important to him. And that was definitely a deciding factor in this grad student joining that lab. And it's definitely true. That is a lab where students get in there and they get on projects, they publish papers and they get out. And so, you know, if I was a grad student and all things being equal, I'd like the science in two labs and one PI seem motivated to help me move through the process efficiently. I would certainly take that into consideration. I know
1: I may even take the science i liked slightly less in order to get out on time i know you and i may have different ways of weighing that option but the ability to finish on a schedule to publish papers to be done and then go on to study something that maybe really stokes my fire i i may make that trade
0: i would love to see a graph of your enjoyment of a topic over time <laughs> and, and graph that yeah. from years one and then past year five. Oh, year that'd six, be amazing.
1: So I'm, you start in the lab that is just like off the charts, the best place this. for you. And you go after year nine to, I will murder anybody who
0: mentions this topic to me. Yeah. I don't think enthusiasm would ever be at an all time high at year seven, eight or nine. Nope, no, That's true. That's interesting. I, I think we can make that graph. All right, well, if you have any other feedback on this topic, keep it coming in, and we'll talk about it on the show. But for now, Dan, let's talk about summer research programs.
1: All right, Josh, I will uh, go ahead and kick this one off. We got a listener question that seemed really timely, so let me read it to you. This is from Talia.
0: And this is not Talia who... Was our friend from Australia who studies echidnas?
1: True, a different one. That's right. It says, Hi gang. This summer I had an amazing opportunity to do research at my dream school. I'm a public health undergraduate and I have experience mostly in qualitative methods and community based research. This summer I'll be in a really cool epigenetics lab. I have very little background in biology and even less in bench lab experience. She says that she took an intro to bio class and kind of got a middle in grade. For all of you bench lab folks and people in a mentoring capacity, what makes an undergraduate RA coachable? What habits do you love or don't love in your research assistants? Thanks. Great question. I can, uh, you know, I've I've told the story before. Making paraffin balls and, and burning them or throwing them at things. Not my favorite, although it happened all the time.
0: That's something you did or that's something your undergrads did? the undergrads did. I'm sure I did it too when I was an undergrad. It's just a common rite of passage. Parafilm is amazing. I remember a grad student in my postdoc lab was, was burning some parafilm and he had his, he was facing me and he had his back to the walkway through the lab. And what he didn't see that I saw, it was almost like slow motion. Our PI comes walking through the lab and he's standing there holding up a giant flaming ball of parafilm. And, uh, it's he, hard to extinguish and hide, Well, he saw my eyes kind of move away from <laughs> you. Went, you went back to your pipetting. <laughs> nothing to see here, wasn't even watching. Yeah. He was, she just, uh, rolled her eyes and kept walking. So, uh, that was pretty funny. Very common, not good advice for what to do as a summer student. He's a PI now.
1: Is that right? Yeah, See? So so go ahead and
0: set everything on fire. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, okay, Dan. Well, this is a great question from Talia. And and we were talking about it, Dan. I don't think we have talked a whole lot about summer research opportunities and advice specifically for undergraduates who are doing research maybe for the first time but are very early in their research career taking part in, in research during the summer. So we thought we would devote this episode to really giving a lot of great tips for how you can make the most out of your summer research opportunity.
1: Love it. Can we first talk about, Josh, why somebody should do summer research as opposed
0: to maybe getting a job at Barnes & Noble or something? <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, I think summer research can be important for so many reasons. And, and one thing, Dan, I can remember, I have very fond memories of the one summer in undergrad between my junior and senior year where I did summer research and you know, it was the first time that I had ever really focused on research sort of on a full-time basis. And I can remember how much fun we had. There were several undergrads in the lab. We were all there focusing on research. And I just remember it being a really fun time. Uh, one one thing that, one funny story I can remember is our PI would always get into lab really early. I mean, we're talking like 6.30 in the morning. Okay, that's early. I thought you were going to say 9.30 a.m. That is <laughs> no, no, super early. And so we thought it would be really funny if we were all in the lab, hard at work, when he walked in, because that wasn't the usual. Tough to scenario. do. You better stay up because you're not getting up. Well, that's what we did. So we actually uh, we went out to dinner that night, and I think we actually might have gone out to the bar and <laughs> hung out for a while, and then we headed back into the lab around one or two in the morning, and we did experiments. All night long, we had music going, uh, we were blasting the music, it, it was really fun, I could really remember this was kind of this fun atmosphere, just sort of watching the clock waiting for 6.30 to roll around. And he had a flat tire and was late, <laughs> didn't come in that day. But, well, I can remember, he, he walked in looked around, gave a puzzled look and just walked out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> Went home it. for the day. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, Dan, I think there are some advantages beyond uh, some of those antics for, for doing some research and the first one, and this is what I alluded to. So doing some research as an undergraduate for a, a lot of us, it's the first time that you have the opportunity to do research on an uninterrupted basis. So as an undergrad, maybe you're doing research at your home institution. And I don't know about you, Dan, but when I was an undergrad, I had so many different things going on between a full load of classes and clubs and organizations and friends. Um, Certainly, I did research during my my junior and senior year, but I had a lot of different irons in the fire.
1: I'm trying to think of how many hours a week I worked in a lab as an undergrad. It was probably 10 or 20. It was some ridiculously small amount during Mm -hmm. the semester. So... Certainly not the same thing as being in a lab 60 hours a week or 40 hours a week or whatever it is that you do as a graduate student.
0: Yeah, and and you know yourself, Dan, being in grad school... You're focusing on research on a full-time basis, which is a completely different animal than the way you interface with, with research as an undergrad, uh, sort of bouncing in, like you mentioned, you know, hopping in for a couple hours on Thursday afternoon and then coming in Wednesday during lunchtime. Yeah, you show up
1: and maybe set up a PCR and somebody else takes it out <laughs> of the machine for you and then three days later you thaw out the... The re, you know, the the results of that and run a gel. And then next week you do a different, but it's, it's a gel a week probably.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so it's a time you can really, you know, take a little more ownership on a project and and for a topic, which leads a little bit into the next advantage, I think, of doing summer research and that it helps you figure out if you should go to grad school. So, you know, as we just said, Dan, in grad school, you're going to be doing research full time. So summer research can be a great way to see what you actually think about doing research full-time.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that point, Josh, although I still feel a, a strong sense that I should have stayed longer than a summer because I did a summer and thought I was really ready for grad school, and what I would have discovered after a year is something different, I think. But it's certainly a step in the right direction, and taking that time over the summer to get your feet wet, to understand what it's like from 9 to 5 or whatever the hours are of doing research, uh, I think it's helpful. I just don't, you know, what I'm concerned about or what I don't know is, can you get a meaningful amount of research done in a summer?
0: Well, I think one of the disadvantages of summer research is that right about the time that you're trained and you kind of have half a clue about what's going on, it's time to go home.
1: Even though I don't know... How much of the subject you'll be able to go deep on or the experience of research, you will have plenty of time to pick up some techniques. Maybe you can pick a lab where you need to learn a specific technique um, that having those techniques understood and down and practiced is really going to help you get started when you get to grad school.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and you know, it gives you a little bit of illumination about the type of research you might find interesting because a summer research program, you might have the opportunity to work in a type of lab doing a type of research that maybe isn't available to you at your undergrad school. Totally. All right, Dan, the, the next thing is most summer research programs tend to be at larger research institutions.
1: Not the one you described earlier.
0: <laughs> well, not my experience. Yeah. That's true. But if you do come from a smaller school, a summer research program might be your first opportunity to work and interact in a big research institution environment. A lot of the graduate programs that that you might be targeting down the road might be at some of these larger um, Research One institutions. And you know, it can be really helpful, one, just to see what those environments are like and get some experience working there. But also when it comes time for admissions down the road, it can be really helpful to sort of have a connection at one of those, those big research intensive programs. Do you feel that it was materially different working in a lab at a small liberal arts
1: college and working at a tier one research institution? Is it, doesn't it all come down to the lab, like individual lab environment? It's, you're working with 20 other people or whatever it is, or 10 other
0: people. Isn't it kind of the same no matter where you go? I mean, some people may have that experience. I think for me, there actually was a little bit of an adjustment that had to be made going from a smaller liberal arts school uh, where I had done, first done research and then moving to a large research-intensive institution. It was just, a, for me, it was a very different environment to do research than it had been at the liberal arts school. Your
1: lab at, the, at your undergraduate institution was five or six people? Well, you know, actually, there were probably eight to ten undergrads. Okay, so but then a, a core... lot of people, but not necessarily postdocs and graduate students. Yeah, there students.
0: were no postdocs. Um, there were some master's students, but that was about it. The undergrads really did a lot of the the lion's share of the research. But clearly, research happened at a very different pace um, than think... it did in in graduate school, but I didn't know that. Because, because the advisor...
1: <laughs> Was advising
0: 10 undergrads. Absolutely. While teaching courses. While teaching, yeah. yeah. That that would be a different pace. But that was my only experience of research to date. Uh, So when I went to graduate school, I think I had some expectation that it was going to be like it had been in my undergrad, and that was not at all the case. But that being said, you know, bringing it back to summer research, I think had I taken part in an opportunity where I would have done research at a larger research institution, there would have been a little less of that adjustment phase because I would have anticipated what to expect.
1: That's interesting. Uh, It makes me think of my undergraduate research experience. I worked in either smaller labs or labs where the PI was very new, a new faculty member. And so I also had a lot of attention from the PI. But you were at a big school. I was at a big school, but in a small lab. So... Mm -hmm. I know we've heard from listeners over the years that they get to a large lab, a tier one research institution. They say, I see my PI once a quarter and that's it. And so I think having that experience where you come in thinking, I'm going to get a lot of support from this person. So I'm choosing my lab based on how nice they are, how cool their research seems and I want to interact with them. But then they get to this larger institution where you don't see that person. So so doing the calculus on on choosing a lab is pretty different. And I think having that experience at a larger institution is going to be really helpful.
0: Definitely. And and Dan, so the last advantage that I want to point out, and, and we alluded to this, but doing summer research can make you more competitive for grad school. You know, I direct admissions for a large biomedical PhD program. And I can say that unequivocally, the number one way you can be really competitive for a PhD program in science is to get research experience. So if we had applicants who had a perfect GPA, perfect GRE scores, but no research experience, they would have a really hard time getting into grad school. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. And, And by the way, I mean... You should probably do research to make sure you you know that you like it before you go to grad school. Yeah,
1: that's not a negative thing to say that you shouldn't get into graduate school if you don't have research experience. Graduate school will be research. If you haven't demonstrated that you enjoy it or that you want to do it, nobody should. They're doing you a favor by not letting you in.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, PhD programs, most of them pay you a nice stipend and they pay for your tuition. And so there's a fairly large investment in you. And so graduate programs want to feel confident that there's a really good chance that that's what you want to do and that you're going to be successful when you get there.
1: Um, now to, the, to Talia's initial question where she talks about being a public health undergraduate and um, wanting to go back to study maybe epigenetics, it sounds like she's going on to a science type graduate school career. But certainly a lot of students came through my lab, I assume your lab too, Josh, that were medical students, dentistry students, they're going on to other professional schools. They're doing this because it boosts their resume, but they don't expect long-term to to be in the lab. We probably won't talk about those students in that divide. I don't think they're probably listeners to Hella PhD Podcast, but certainly some of my memories of students who wanted to go on to grad school versus students who were just checking a box to get into medical school are different memories.
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And I'll say no more. Some of them were great. Some, <laughs> some of them were, of them great, were great and some of them were not. Well, and and you know, Dan, to the point we were talking about as far as summer research being an opportunity to figure out if research is your thing, this was my experience. My, I think this is the experience a lot of undergrads have. I think there's probably a lot more undergrads who come into college thinking, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a dentist or a pharmacist because... I know I had interacted with doctors and dentists and pharmacists growing up. I came from a small town. I had never met a scientist before. I had no knowledge or, or viewpoint on that as a career. It's not something that would have crossed my mind. And so for me, getting involved, sort of happening into a lab, almost on accident, opened up this possibility that I had not considered before. And so for a lot of students who are undergrads, they're in that sort of figuring out phase. They know they like science, maybe they like medicine. And so biomedical research, maybe their initial motivation for pursuing that opportunity is to check a box for medical school. But you know, Dan, I've talked to a lot of students who get involved in research and really discover something that they had not considered that they they really gravitate towards.
1: Such a good point. And and I can remember thinking, well, I like science, so I must have to go to be a doctor. And that's, Absolutely not true. You can love science and do other things with it. But to your point, I never met a scientist before I was in college. So mm-hmm. it is what it is. We'll, t- we'll talk more people out of going to medical school yet. I <laughs> promise. We right.
0: you know, Dan, uh, you know, even if you do research at your home institution, summer research can really provide a structured opportunity for you to not only learn some new things, but importantly, expands your network. And you have a new faculty PI who can write you a letter of recommendation. And that's immensely helpful
1: priceless, some would say. So let's answer Talia's question. What are the things that make an undergraduate, you know, she used the word coachable, or what habits do you love or don't love when a new
0: student comes through the lab? All right, Dan. Well, oftentimes we will turn to our really helpful Slack community for support. And so we were we were discussing this with some of those folks on our Slack channel. And Risa had this to say. So, Risa said, I haven't worked with any undergraduates, but I do work with a lot of post-baccalaureate technicians, and I think the ones that are most successful have the following qualities. And so, so she listed several qualities. Uh, she listed four qualities, actually, and then I added a few of my own. You piled on. And we came up with seven. So, what we're going to present now are Seven qualities that we think uh, make up a really successful and effective summer researcher. In no particular order, I assume? These are not
1: organized by, if you could do one thing, do this? In no particular order. Okay, great. In no particular order.
0: And actually, the first four are the ones that Risa came up with. So. Okay, great.
1: Well, then some particular order.
0: Yeah. So, so here's the first thing she said. So, she said the first one is Humility. They don't pretend to know what they don't know, and they ask questions when necessary and and admit mistakes. This can be hard to do because it feels like admitting failure, but it is crucial because not doing this can result in a small mistake ballooning into a costly experimental failure and a lot of lost time. It doesn't make you look stupid to admit mistakes. It makes you look like you care. That is a tough one because I think a lot of the
1: students who are going on to graduate school who go through these summer programs... They have been the top of their class for their whole life, right? You, you, Many of them get to where they are because they excelled in school. And part of that is always being right and having studied the most and being the smartest person in the room. Getting the A
0: on the test, getting the, getting the, the test. questions right.
1: It is hard to say, I don't understand this because I've always understood everything. I've always worked hard enough to figure it out. And now you're presenting me with an experiment or you're presenting me with a technique. I don't get it. So what do I do?
0: I power through it the way I always fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. But that is very expensive. Yeah, and that's that's actually very bad advice and will give the wrong impression. And and you know, I can I can definitely understand this from the student point of view. I can remember being being the student in this position, especially coming into a new research environment, a summer research in a summer research program, the imposter syndrome can be really firing on all cylinders and you know, you maybe even have a feeling that Wow, these people are so smart. How did I end up here? I don't belong here. The last if thing they you want, find out that I'm yeah. not as smart as they are. Yeah, and that's the last thing you want people to find out is you have no clue <laughs> what's going on. But I think Reese's advice is really, really important that pretending to know is not the not the best course of action and And here's a little tidbit that something I did not appreciate when I was an undergrad. But when you come into a lab as an undergraduate, and this is actually probably true of a first-year rotation student, the bar is set very low. (laughs) They don't really expect you to know anything. I say that to make you feel better as an undergrad coming into the lab. The expectation is that you know nothing and that they will teach you what you need to know.
1: you have any pet peeves,
0: the... the Least
1: favorite things, expressions of non-humility?
0: Yeah, so one thing that I've encountered that you really want to avoid is maybe you've done research before. Uh, maybe you've done PCR and you're going to be doing some PCR in your new lab. And so the postdoc or grad student you're working with is, is walking you through the way they do PCR in your new lab. You want to avoid things like, well, in my old lab, we did it this way. Uh, you want to be humble and maybe learn something new because you are the low person on the org chart
1: yeah that it you know that phrase it just brings up so many memories. I'm sure I said it. you probably had times. some
0: undergrads like this, or maybe you were that undergrad,
1: yeah, I don't know i I certainly heard it i'm I probably said it um it seems like the right way to approach this is, oh, that's really interesting. It's different from how we did it. Tell me about this or or we can discuss the reasons that they take these steps. Maybe you will bring something innovative, but you shouldn't be trying to. Out innovate them in every <laughs> technique because that
0: gets very old very fast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next thing that Risa said was careful attention to detail. So she said bench science is a lot of following protocols exactly, and small changes can lead to big differences in outcome. I've worked with technicians who consistently perform experiments correctly, and others who seem to vary randomly between success and failure. I think the difference comes down to attention to detail. It can be harder or easier for different people to pay enough attention, but everyone can develop habits that help reduce errors, such as always working from right to left. You should ask the people you're working with if they have any suggestions for tricks to reduce error. So uh, this attention to detail, it's probably good to practice in summer research.
1: Life skills. Life skills. Yeah, and, and I don't know. This is This is a tough one because some people will say well either you have it or you don't i don't think that's true i agree with risa on this that there are are things you can learn certainly the way you are doing tissue culture in a hood on day 1 where you know the pipette tip is touching the wall and then the floor and then it goes back into is different from how you are on day 30 where everything is machine precise and you're not cross-contaminating. And that difference isn't because some people are just good at tissue culture. It's because you've learned to pay attention. And I think that's what
0: she's talking about here. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And I think uh, to a certain extent, this attention to detail happens with time once you just feel comfortable with certain with certain techniques. Because um, you mentioned the tissue culture, Dan. I can remember doing tissue culture for the first time. And there's so many things going through your head about, okay, wait, open the lid of the media first and then wait, where's the, where does the tip go? Oh, wait, usually somebody's standing over your shoulder. (laughs) No,
1: you just touched another thing, throw it away. And then
0: you're throwing out five or 10 plastic pipettes and you feel terrible. Yeah. And so the last thing you're doing is honing in on some detailed procedure for doing things. You're just trying to get the big picture. So, uh, but I think summer research is a great time to hone that skill of, of planning carefully and executing carefully. I'm going to,
1: I want to throw out an idea and you can shoot it down, but I feel like if you are new in that summer program in the first couple of weeks, when you're really learning the techniques, I would argue keep your headphones out of your ears. And it pains me to say that because you could be listening to hello PhD, but one more distraction is one more chance for you to make a mistake and while you're learning the technique before it's second nature, I would say, uh,
0: avoid that. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, doing techniques because they are often so precise and getting distracted, you can easily forget, oh, which sample did I just pipette? Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> you start thinking about the story in your audiobook or whatever it is, and, and you
0: lost track of your order or which one you pipetted. I can certainly remember looking at a test tube rack and trying to determine, um, which of the tubes had ten microliters more than the other tubes? and And
1: that being said, after you've done the technique enough times, usually you're on autopilot and you could do it blindfolded, listening to heavy metal. But I would say in just the first couple of weeks, I would try to avoid distractions.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's great feedback. All right, Dan, and I think along those lines, uh, Reese's next tip is it's important to be engaged with the science. You have to buy a ring? (laughs) If you like that science, you better put a ring on it. That's right. Uh, So she said that this is not essential, but it really makes you stand out. An average research assistant will do what they're told, but an outstanding research assistant engages with the work, asking questions about the rationale behind the experiment, contributing ideas, and she says there are no bad ideas, and volunteering to help with additional experimental directions. They also raise the bar on workplace behavior. Risa is absolutely right on this. I think this might be, these are not in rank order, but this might be one of the more important uh, important ones because I think asking questions and being engaged in the lab cannot be understated, especially for um, someone who's newer in the lab. And, and this goes a little bit back, Dan, to what we were talking about earlier, which is reasons why a, an undergraduate researcher or someone new to the lab might not want to make known how little they know. But, you know, I think sometimes the thought is that if I don't ask questions, people will think that I'm really smart and I know all the answers, but it's actually the opposite of that. Not asking questions will generally be interpreted as you're not interested in what's going on.
1: No, I agree with that. If if you come in and expect to be handed a punch list and told what to do, at, you know, first you're going to wash the dish and then you're going to go over here then you're an automaton. You're not a lab member. And if you really want to learn, I think you need to
0: understand why you're doing the things you're doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So ask questions, be engaged. And and this is really, you know, this is in in a small way, this is training towards what the expectation will be later on in graduate school is that you're moving towards a more independent place beyond just, okay, here's a protocol. I'm going to execute the protocol, but to a place where you're also thinking about, well, why am I doing that? Here's a result. What does this result mean? And you may not know, right? Or you may be totally wrong and that's okay. I feel like there are a
1: couple of different levels to that statement engagement with the science because, uh, on the one end, I think, the best scientists I have ever known are the ones who understand what the reagents and their reaction are doing. Like they understand that I'm adding this buffer because it makes the enzyme work because it has to be between this pH range. And I, and I understand why the salt level is this and, and they, they actually understand why they're putting together this recipe that they're making on the far end of the spectrum. And I think this is just as critical why are you doing this experiment? What is it leading to? What part of the story that the lab is trying to tell does this piece fit into? And I hope at least that the summer student understands that because being part of that saga of, of uncovering something new in science is the thing that's going to make them excited, not
0: the what buffer we're using today. And I'll say this, Dan, thinking back on my own experience, I was really good at that part. You know, I always thought of my project as a story, And this experiment, you know, what mine was a tragedy was yours (laughs) and that was a comedy, Okay, (laughs) but it was, you know, which was the question I'm trying to answer here. And when I would get the results, you know, I was really excited to get the results and thinking about those results and what they meant was, was something that, that did click with me and it's motivating. It, 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 it's what motivated me. But I will also say where I would sometimes get into trouble is the less interesting part to me was just what you mentioned first, and that is knowing what each and every reagent did, the importance of using this concentration or this enzyme or that enzyme. And that is just as important, especially when you're just starting out because it's gonna be much harder to troubleshoot when each of the reagents you're adding are like magical ingredients (laughs) that if like a witch's brew, if you add just the right... Yeah, you're, you're
1: so right. Yeah, there's something floating in this bottle... If I understood that this was a buffer and it had precipitated out and maybe my concentration is totally wrong now, if I understand what this bottle is, I could do that. If I don't and I just take my 12 microliters of it and call it a day, I'm going to be very stuck for a long time. I say that as a person who wasn't very good at it, but like I said, some of the best scientists I knew really did understand the details.
0: Yeah, and and you know as we're saying this, I think we're setting the bar a little high like for new totally. researchers is. You know, we're asking you to attack this science thing from two different levels. On one hand, every protocol that you are executing, try to try to make it a goal to understand every step you're doing. Why are you doing that? What is the purpose of all the different things you're adding? And you're not going to know at first, but those are good questions. We talked about asking questions. Those are some great questions to ask. And my guess is what is probably going to happen, you're going to force the grad student or postdoc you're working with who probably brush up on their own knowledge of these experiments they've right. been doing.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and one last thing I wanted to say about engaging with the science. I don't feel like undergraduate classes really prepare you for what it's like to understand research science. I think that um, when we read textbooks, we're reading settled science. When we, when we do our lab classes, we're doing experiments that the outcome is known and the steps are clear. And that is not how research is. And so don't expect to be great at this based on your training as a, as a class attender. It takes time and just recognize that it takes everybody time. And that's why you're doing the summer research in the first place.
0: And that's part of what makes research so hard, especially for undergraduates, I think, because you're steeped in that environment of classes and exams. Here's the answer. Where, yeah, if you do the best at getting the answers and there are answers, you get the good grade. But not knowing the answer in science doesn't mean you're failing. It means, well, nobody knows the answer. That's why it's important to do these experiments in the first place.
1: So true. Fourth habit of highly effective summer students.
0: All right. They are good stewards. So, for example, making sure common supplies are ordered when they run out. They're team players, for example, volunteering to help a coworker with a particularly difficult experiment. They're hard workers, for example, reading journal articles during downtime rather than playing a computer game. Or parafilm basketball. <laughs> uh, note that none of these require killing yourself or working long hours. It's about respecting the job and everyone in the lab. Uh, Dan, wow, this is really true. And, and this is not just true for summer students, but I think um, really for all grad students is realize that a lab is not just uh, a series of islands of independent people working, but it really is a team. It really is a team and almost in some cases like a dysfunctional family. And it's important to, to pull your weight uh, for the team, not just for yourself. Yeah. So people will notice if they have to clean up after
1: you or if they show up and, and you use the last of the reagent or whatever it is, um, I think that's part of this answer, but part of it is just showing that you're working hard, that you're not wasting time in the downtime. Um, I think that's a hard thing to do cause you're g- going to want to scroll Instagram, but for those few hours or whatever it is, you're in the lab, try to be really focused and, uh, you know, you can take that time to learn what those buffers do.
0: Yeah. You know, I tell you nothing will make a better impression than if there's a lab chore to be done and you go do it. That is a great way to gain favor with your new lab, way more than getting some cool result on your own project. Be the autoclaver? Yeah, like, oh, I saw you were getting ready to put that autoclave trash, so I went ahead and put it in for you. Can you imagine you're under you would that? was that. my
1: whole experiment. What are you doing? <laughs> oh my god! I goodness. keep it in a biohazard bag
0: <laughs> with it the autoclave tape text on there. <laughs> um, all right, Dan. So those were some good. Those were some good suggestions that Risa had as far as being a successful uh, summer student. I came up with three more of my own that I just wanted to add to this. And and the first one is to make it a point to interact with the PI if possible. Well, yeah. And and Dan, you had said, you know, you had alluded to sometimes at large research institutions, there might be PIs who are gone a lot and you might not see them much. And that could be true. Uh, Maybe if you're in a lab of a super established, super famous person who's traveling all the time, but regardless, try to have, if you can, regular meetings with the PI. It's okay to ask to do that. And, you know, even if that's not an option and hopefully it will be, is that so you can get letters of recommendation? Well, yeah, because I mean, to be very practical about this... Who is this person? If you think through this, what might happen if you apply to grad school in a year or two years, a letter of recommendation from that PI, and actually we should make sure we say it's important to have a letter from that PI, you need to give them something in the memory bank to draw from when they write that letter of recommendation. And so um, if you're making a point to not just be some random undergrad who shows up and they don't know your name, but, but really make an effort to interact with them as much as you can... Um, and, And one way you can do that is participate in lab meetings. So there's probably some sort of time when the lab gets together to discuss research. It's really important for you to not just sort of sit there and passively let it go over your head, but participate. You know, ask questions. And if there's an opportunity for you to present at the lab meeting... Advocate for that and take advantage of that, even though it so might feel scary. <laughs> but that's really important. It's a chance for you to showcase that you really understood what you were doing there. And, and you re- even if you didn't get a lot of good results, that you were there, you were paying attention, and you were interested in what was going on. That goes along with, with my next one that is related, and that's do your best to become a member of the lab during the time you're there. So you may feel like, as a new person coming in who's only there for a temporary period of time that this isn't for you. You're like a visitor there. But as much as you can, really think about that lab as this is my lab for the next three months. And and do things like interact with people, not just maybe you're assigned to a grad student or postdoc on a day-to-day basis, and certainly you'll interact with them. But do your best to introduce yourself and, and talk to other folks in the lab. Do lab chores. We talked about that. Go to lunch if people are, are Hanging out, eating lunch in the break room, or they invite you to to walk to grab lunch at a restaurant. Go do those things. One, it's going to make your experience just more enjoyable. But you never know how much how helpful it'll be to to build those relationships and expand your network in that way. So true.
1: The best part of lab for me was the people. I had the privilege of working with really great, kind, wonderful human beings, and. Um, there are some of my happiest memories is all the downtime that you spend not doing research. So it's it's totally worth it.
0: And I know I met so many different people through the years in lab, starting in undergrad, people I would have never met from places I would have, that I had never been. And, and that's part of your educational experience too. And you might learn something. All right, Dan. And then the last thing has to do with after you leave, and that is keep in touch. So, you know, we mentioned the bad thing about summer research is just when you're starting to figure it out, it's time to go. And most of you will probably be going directly back to the business of being an undergrad. However, if you're applying to grad school, you are definitely going to want to ask your summer PI for letter recommendations. recommendation. So ideally... Uh, the next time they hear from you is not going to be a year or two or three later when you say oh hey pi i uh, know you haven't heard from me for 3 years but would you write me this letter of recommendation and they probably will a better situation is not necessarily to spam their inbox weekly but you know once a semester maybe just shoot an email and reach out and say hey you know this is what i'm up to i'm still moving towards graduate school and if you want to be really savvy you could say something like you know i had such a great experience in your lab it's really made my desire stronger to continue on in a career in research, and they're going to love to hear something like that. Hopefully no faculty are listening right now when they all get the same email. <laughs> oh my goodness. And, and you know, I want to mention too that a nice thank you email right after the summer ends is a nice touch saying, hey, I enjoyed my time in your lab. Thanks for having me. And maybe even, even send a similar one if there's anyone in the lab that, that went out of their way to make your experience um, special.
1: No, so great. And it's, uh, you know, as you progress through your career, the people that you interacted with in your summer program will have moved on to other places. And so, you know, I, I went to Wisconsin a few years ago and somebody that I knew in undergrad was there. And so we got together for lunch. It's the kind of thing that, that these people are going to be moving all over the world. And it's so cool to think about uh, somebody I knew 15 years ago or 20 years ago. It still feels like we're caught up or, you know, you catch up on the last whatever five years of what just happened. And because you spent so much intense time together, that camaraderie, that friendship comes right back. So even just from the perspective of, of having lifelong friends, which I know, Josh, you have even from your undergrad period and your graduate school time, uh, you and I met in graduate school. So
0: it's, it's wild how close you can get to people um, just through a few months. Absolutely. So, summer research is a great opportunity. And and if there's a take-home message to all this, make the most of it. All right, Dan. Well, this was a really fun discussion. I enjoyed it. Makes me want to go back and be an undergrad in the lab again. I know. We don't often
1: think about that time period of of undergraduate before grad school trying to pick up the skills. Uh, But it was really fun. I'm really glad we got the question. And it was really fun to think back about that time and to maybe offer some advice, things we
0: wish we had known. Yeah, I can honestly say I can't remember a time in my career where I was more excited about research than during the time I was an undergrad. It was such a fun an exciting time uh, to do research. And Dan, I know we have a lot of undergrads who listen to our show. You know, we get messages and I'll meet people who who say they're in the process of thinking about going to grad school and they find the podcast helpful from that vantage point. So, um, hey, if they listen to our show and they still apply to grad school, I guess at least they know what they're getting into, right? And for Talia, who asked the question, I think you're on the right track because you
1: asked. And You seem to be engaging uh, the subject and trying to figure out how to do it the right way, which is leaps and bounds ahead of most of the the summer research students that
0: I I mentored. All right. Well, if you have a question or a topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the beer money, and we'll give you access to our patron-only Slack channel. Thanks to the ongoing support from all our patrons. All right, Josh, we we killed the grapefruit. It's gone. Man, this was so good. Pedro, thank you. I think you warmed uh, up to it. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I, I hardly ever finish a beer during the time we're recording the podcast, but this one, my glass is empty. It's hot out, so. It is pretty wet. It is, is the right
1: beer for tonight. So thanks again to Pedro, and we will, Josh, will see you next time. See you next time.